It's March 1997. MSF Holland's exploratory teams have just got back from their missions in the Kivus. On the surface, the teams are there to make nutritional surveys and find suitable transit points for the refugees. But in both Masisi in North Kivu and Shabunda in South Kivu, they find evidence of systematic humanitarian abuses and mass graves. They also make the shocking discovery that MSF teams and other humanitarian organisations are being used as bait to lure refugees out of the forests and onto the roads, only for them to be killed by the Alliance forces following in their wake. A confidential document relating to members of the Masisi exploratory team is sent to the MSF Zaire programme manager, MSF GOMA coordinator and humanitarian affairs department. On Friday the 27th of March, MSF met the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in Zaire, Roberto Garaton, in Goma. His mission was to collect evidence of continuing allegations of massacres in eastern Zaire, with the aim to submit a proposal to the Commission on Human Rights to establish a commission of inquiry. MSF did not disclose the information on the mass graves in Masisi, since it felt unsure of how Garaton would use this information. Garaton, from his side, however, pointed out that he had sufficient information to build his argument for the Commission to adopt a resolution authorising a Commission of Inquiry. This means that MSF's information can be best submitted to such a Commission of Inquiry. The document continues. For obvious reasons, MSF cannot go public with the information. It has been decided to pursue more silent channels and to give the information to a third party. Leslie Lefko was on the Masisi exploratory team. We met with the UN Special Rapporteur on Zaire, Roberto Garaton and his assistant, but there was a, a lot of ambivalence within MSF about how much to share with him um, for various reasons. I think that there was um, a conservatism among some members of MSF about cooperating with uh, him and, and about... Um, providing information to human rights mechanisms. There was also, I think, ambivalence about the quality of the information that we had, because, of course, the visit to Masisi was short. It was unauthorized. Uh, you know, we had gone there secretly. There was concern about putting the villagers in danger. Um, and there was also, I think, real, there were real question marks about what did we actually know? I mean, who did who were in those graves? Who were the perpetrators? So for all of those reasons, we were we were very coy, I think, in that meeting. We, we didn't divulge exactly what had happened, although later we, of course, shared much more information with, with uh, the UN and others. When the Masisi team gets back to Goma, there's a debate over what to do with this information. Should they make it public or not? Will it compromise the refugees' safety and the MSF teams working in the region? After long discussions internally at MSF Holland, the section decides not to publish the Masisi team's report. Leslie is unhappy about the decision not to speak out. When we returned from the trip in, in Goma, we had very, very charged discussions within the field team in Goma. And there were several views. I mean, there was... On the one hand, I think my view was that we needed to speak out about what we'd seen, in part because I think I had hoped that by doing so, we might be able to stop uh, reprisal 
operations or, or, or attacks on the village and the villagers. Uh, so that was one view, and there were others in the team who, who did support that, who felt that, you know, we needed to share what we thought was going on in, in Masisi. But there were strands in that conversation, I think, some people feeling that MSF could only speak out on the basis of medical information, which I think still begs the question, well, how can you work in those places and take a purely medicalized view of MSF role? How can you then say, well, we'll wait until we have X amount of medical data when you're talking about going to places where there are mass graves? You know, MSF's raison d'être is about trying to to voice what the team see and and that's about the whole totality of the situation not just about the medical work so there were some people who felt that if we spoke out and named the village that it would provoke reprisals by the AFDL by the alliance soldiers there were others who felt that by publicizing the village you know you might actually give them some measure of protection so that sort of classic question of whether whether publicity helps or you know provides protection or not and in, in my own view it's a very much a case by case um, but there were also questions of course about the continuity of operations and whether or not speaking out about what we had seen and, and experienced would jeopardize our ability to continue operating in the area. And, and that was a real that was a real issue, of course, because humanitarian organizations were facing constant denials of access, sometimes on supposed security justifications, which may have been real, but also, of course, because there were other agendas at work and the authorities wanted to keep foreign eyes and ears out of areas while they were continuing to do the nettoyage. And in the end, the group that felt that either we didn't have enough information or that, you know, we shouldn't speak out, sort of won out. And um, we instead compiled the information in a report which was shared quietly later with various groups, along with, of course, other reports um, that emerged from Shabunda and, and others. The dilemma over whether to go public with the information gathered in Masisi clearly divides the Dutch section. But still, they choose to go down the route of so-called silent advocacy again with the Shabunda report. It's this decision, made without consulting the other sections, that creates a furious debate within the organisation in the coming weeks, as the crisis in the Great Lakes deepens. Questions are asked about whether MSF should keep working in Zaire and call out the Alliance's strategy of using humanitarian organisations as bait in the hope of preventing further massacres. Or should they close down their projects because the risk to MSF teams and other operations in the region is too great? Many also ask whether it's ethical to encourage the refugees' forced repatriation to Rwanda when their safety cannot be guaranteed. Or should MSF instead call for people to stay in eastern Zaire, knowing they could be in as much danger on that side of the border? This is Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Episode 6, Silent versus Public Advocacy. Today, we say enough. Even war has been. civils massés le long de la frontière risquent d'un jour à l'autre d'être repoussés. Stop the bombing. 
of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Three MSF staff who went on the exploratory mission to Shabunda in March 1997 are getting ready to give their initial report to colleagues at MSF Holland. They get a similar reaction to the one Leslie received after returning from Misisi. We said, look, we have to speak out. This is wrong. But there was another camp saying, 10,000 refugees came through here and maybe we shouldn't speak up because we're helping this sizable number and we might get kicked out. The third camp was people from Zaire, who had been working there for some time, not related to an emergency project, but had put a lot of energy in their projects and didn't want to give up their programme. They saw it as separate, and so they didn't want to leave. So there was this dynamic of these three camps. We were about 20 people. Max Glazer from the Context Unit in Amsterdam came to organise these discussions, He tried to put it into a framework and organise the discussion and the ideas to come up with a decision with what we wanted to do. The main point at the end was, yes, we want to use the information, but we don't want to go public with it. We wanted to use the info and go to embassies and talk to governments to put pressure on UNHCR to do their job. So that was what was decided. Then we went to Goma and had this same discussion at the country management level. And again... The same dilemma and outcome. Those were the recommendations Max took back with him. On the 9th of April 1997, the MSF USA Interim Head of Communications advises the network to adopt a cautious pressure strategy on the issue of human rights violations in Eastern Zaire. She argues that MSF has no visual first-hand evidence of people being killed and that seeing mass graves is proof of nothing. MSF is not amnesty, she reminds them. On their return to Holland a couple of days later, the MSF staff member on the Shibunda team carries out a debriefing and writes a more detailed report. We worked really hard. We worked three days straight to get it finished. There was a discussion about how to do the report. They didn't want to just do it like a statement because they said a lot of it just wasn't fact, a lot of it was hearsay. So they redid it and constructed the report in subdivisions, refugee, presence, etc. Some of it they dropped out. I think it was just a reorganisation of the points. They separated between facts and then substantiated the hearsay. None of these points have evidence. I mean, I didn't dig up a grave. Based on other clues, this is what we came up with. In the short report, they did remove some information. They were going to use it as a press release. They were going to show it to some press people and then take it back. It all had to do with not recognising it being MSF that gave the information. A few days later, the MSF Holland Emergency Programme Manager visits Goma and Bukavu to talk with the teams there. According to her, they agree to the public distribution of this report on Shibunda. When it's sent around, there's a mixed reaction. MSF Belgium challenges the form and some of the content of the report, with the Director of Operations calling it pretty lightweight and very poorly thought out. They veto it being released to the public. MSF Holland sends a message to all sections in response to the criticism from MSF Belgium. The people who talked to both MSF and UNHCR during the exploratory mission 
but too scared to state their names, fearing reprisals upon discovery. We feel that the allegations made regarding human rights abuses, in combination with the things directly seen and or heard by the team during the exploratory mission, give strong reasons to conclude that human rights abuses took place and are still taking place. In principle, it is very rare to directly witness human rights abuses such as mass killings, since they occur mostly when there is no international presence, hence the need for such presence. Indeed, direct witnessing is the strongest form of witnessing or advocacy one could wish for, but in this case was not available. MSF Holland ignores the Belgians' veto. After being briefed by their Humanitarian Affairs Department, the MSF staff member who went to Shabunda presents the report to the British Foreign Affairs Ministry and then to the Canadian government. We went to London and I was about to go to the Foreign Office and we got a call from MSF in Brussels saying, no, don't go, you cannot go. They were trying to give us an order, arguing, we're worried about our people in the field. (laughs) We were there at the door and we had the appointment in five minutes. So the MSF Holland programme manager made the decision to go ahead because we do not take orders from Brussels. In France, the MSF section is shocked at the report's findings. Françoise Boucher-Solnier is MSF's legal advisor. When that information arrived from MSF Holland and I saw the Shabunda report, I didn't know whether I was meant to give feedback or review it. In any case, it arrived on my desk and when I read it, I think I almost fainted because at the end, at the very end of this Shabunda report, we learned that MSF and the UNHCR had been used as bait to attract refugees. The refugees would come to the aid distributions and then they would be killed. There were two things that shocked me right away. First of all, this central element is just a little sentence at the end of the report. and It's not even stated clearly. And the second thing that really shocked me was that this is a report, an eyewitness report, and this information should trigger an immediate operational response. All sections should be warned and all operations with Kabila's alliance should be stopped. And the facts? When I read this report, the facts in it were already more than a month old, which meant that information like this has been known for more than a month without being shared at the operational level and without anyone realising the scale of the issue. And it's true that I went to see the Director of Communications, Jean-Hervé Bradol, and told him that this information is a bombshell. It's extremely serious. It's monstrous. Why have we waited? I said to him, we can't leave the office tonight without doing something about it. This news is unlike any other. This is speaking out unlike any other. We then call the Dutch and ask them what's going on. We want to know more. In this case, it's not only that the humanitarian aid isn't working, but on top of that, humanitarian action is being used to kill to reassure, to attract people in order to better assassinate them. We also have proof in this report that the refugees who officially no longer exist because they've all returned home, not only exist, but we are being used to continue their extermination. A few sharp words follow a lot of toing and froing and a chaotic surge in speaking out efforts from the various MSF sections. To try and make some use of the information gathered at Shabunda, MSF France's general director proposes writing a concise summary of the report and sending it to select reporters, asking them to agree not to cite MSF as the source. So what happened was that this report was written by the HAD, the, the Humanitarian Affairs Department, and it's a bit of a special department at MSF Holland. 
It's not operations, it's not quite communications. It's, it's a department in charge of writing good quality reports that are published regularly. And in fact, they had written a draft of this report and then MSF Belgium had said they couldn't make it public. That was their defence. We couldn't make it public because MSF Belgium had vetoed the report. So we had the veto lifted. We organised a teleconference with the directors of operations because once again, information this serious can't just get stuck like this. It can't just be blocked by administrative negotiations between MSF sections. Vetoes are always discussed for security reasons, for the legitimacy of vetoes, the security of teams in the field, etc. So I took part in this teleconference and I proposed that in order for the veto to be lifted, we remove the names of people who could potentially be endangered by the report's publication. And I also wanted to remove information that was too precise and that could endanger the operations of MSF. So in the end, there were some small things to be done so that the security veto could be lifted. So we made those changes, and I did this in conjunction with MSF Belgium and MSF Holland. And so there were no longer any obstacles to publishing this report. MSF Holland's Humanitarian Affairs Department responds within an hour of Francois sending out a new version of the report. They copy in MSF France's general director. Dear Francoise and Bernard, I am very sorry, but this is not the way you can deal with a report from the Humanitarian Affairs Department of MSF Holland. We are responsible for this report, the content and the distribution. I think this has to be respected. When there is an agreement on using part of our report, it is up to MSF Holland to agree on the version to be used. I don't think it is up to MSF France to decide on the text of a new summary. Of course, we are happy that the veto is lifted and that we can continue with the agreed plan of action, but I strongly stress the need to make this a combined agreement between the sections. Francoise again. And then we thought we were done. But we had problems again because the procedure for writing the report was contested by the Humanitarian Affairs Department of MSF Holland, the authors of the report. They said that changes couldn't be made to a report that they're responsible for. So there was a conflict of legitimacy between the people who produce the report and take professional responsibility for every word they write, and then a report which, under these conditions, was supposed to remain on the shelves, whereas with simple arrangements and a few changes, could be made public. So there was a lot of tension, but we, we managed to publish it in the end. This story leaves me with the feeling of the immense fragility of MSF's capacity to alert and speak out, because the fact that information like this can circulate in emails for two months without stopping anyone's working day, for me, it's, it's really like a punch in the gut. It's scary. Somewhere along the line, this function of speaking out, advocacy and reporting, has been put aside. In fact, what was even more serious was that this information from Shabunda was at the heart of all the struggles that MSF was going through at the time. Because we had to fight against the denialists, who said that all the refugees had returned when they hadn't, they'd been found. And that the government was not chasing them, when the reality was that not only is it chasing them and exterminating them, but it's also using relief organisations to do so. This information supports, feeds and solves all the fights that we face. And then we don't use it. That's it. And I find that frightening because ultimately, this Shabunda report appeared by chance a few days before the fall of Kisangani, which is the end of the story. Militarily, they have won. This is information that is consistent with what we've been saying for the last two months, 
and we are going to have to fight internally for this information to be shared internally and disseminated externally. It really should be a permanent concern and the responsibility of all MSF operations when we are used as an accomplice to perpetrate more violence on a population. So there was a strong feeling of the fragility of the MSF movement at the time, which obviously remains a fear and a question that must always, always drive us. A couple of days later, on the 24th of April, the new Shabunda report summary gets the go-ahead to be sent out to a targeted list of reporters who are deemed reliable and who agree not to cite MSF. MSF Spain's communications director, Rafa Villasan Juan, believes he's been given a green light to go public with it, and so he speaks to a reporter from the Spanish newspaper El País. The next day, El País publishes an article under the headline Médecins Sans Frontières Accuses Zairean Rebels of Massacres. Rafa didn't give the journalist the report itself, but in fact, it turns out there's been a misunderstanding. He wasn't meant to share the report at all. After this, the press officers and the emergency desk officers at MSF Holland are quick to send a new version of the summary report to their counterparts at other sections, letting them know it can be distributed to reporters without restrictions. The teams in the field in the Great Lakes are told about the publication and take security measures in case of any repercussions. There's anger among the various MSF sections in the Great Lakes, Eventually, the Dutch and Belgian sections each hold a press conference and MSF France gives interviews to the press about the report. Agence France Press reports on an interview with MSF France members. In a five-page document distributed in Geneva, the humanitarian organisation stated that the alliance, which has seized more than half of Zaire in close to six months, is carrying out a policy of deliberate terror with a goal of physically eliminating the refugees. Depending on the section, the emphasis is on either the question of access to the refugee camps along the railway tracks south of Kisangani, or the issue of the killings. Meanwhile, in eastern Zaire, there's growing concern about the fate of the refugees outside Kisangani. On the 25th of April 1997, Alliance commander Laurent Désiré Kabila announces that he'll allow the UN and aid organisations into areas under his control to investigate the status of Rwandan refugees. In a flyover later that day, UN humanitarian agencies discover that the 80,000 refugees from the camps on the railway track have actually disappeared. The rumours are true. The camps are empty. In Kisangani, MSF Belgium coordinator writes in the day's SITREP or Situation Report. We realise that staying makes us responsible for non-repatriation and without even a guarantee of being able to save individuals. We know that if we leave now, we will face the unbearable prospect of not being here just when we would have had access to the refugees again. Either we try to carry out advocacy while staying on site or we make a massive retreat from the Great Lakes region and issue a political condemnation. The UN Secretary-General condemns the policy of slowly exterminating the refugees and issues an appeal to governments influential in the region to allow aid to be delivered to refugees. He also announces that an inquiry commission will shortly arrive in the field. 
Meanwhile, the USA decides to become resolutely involved in resolving the Zairean crisis and sends an emissary to Eastern Zaire to mediate between Kabila and Zairean President Mobutu. On the 28th of April, an MSF team is authorised to travel to Biaro and the other devastated refugee camps along the railway line outside Kisangani. Together with the UNHCR representative, the EU representative and reporters, they find a terrible scene, described here in an article by AFP. All the huts the refugees built from branches are empty. Signs of a hurried departure are scattered on the ground. Clothing, shoes and Bibles in Kinyarwanda. A wedding photo of a young couple, smiling and happy, lies on the ground, faded and wrinkled by the rain. It had probably been stored carefully for nearly three years, since the couple's departure from Rwanda in 1994. Some 20 bodies lie nearby the former hospital, set up by the humanitarian organisation Medicines Sans Frontières. MSF starts helping the survivors as much as they can, but the Alliance soldiers are still blocking aid and humanitarian workers from entering the town of Ubuntu. In Europe, Dr Marlene Montaigne has been telling the board of directors at MSF France about the horrors of her recent mission to the camps at Cassisi and Biaro along the railway track. The situation was catastrophic. Most of the refugees could no longer stand. They were exhausted and one after another fell ill. The camps were in the middle of a thick forest, so logistical conditions were very difficult. It was even hard to set up a tent. We were overwhelmed by medical work, and all the refugees were very sick. The eight tents overflowed with people who were very close to death. MSF opened a centre for those who were weak, alone, unaccompanied and could no longer feed themselves. People were dying from exhaustion. The bodies were decomposing, and the stench was unbearable. It was an apocalyptic scene. The rebels blocked access to the camps and serious incidents began to escalate. The World Food Programme food train, MSF reserves and the MSF house were looted. Six villagers were killed and two wounded. We stayed for four days without being able to get to the site, and on Saturday and Sunday, when we went back, we counted the bodies. The board discusses the obstructions between sections that prevent MSF from speaking out publicly and eventually votes to remove the veto right and replace it with a 24-hour advanced security alert. This would allow the field teams to evacuate before making a public statement. The board also votes in favour of a position statement opposing the refugee repatriation to Rwanda, where board members feel refugees would be in danger under the new regime. The whole experience makes her determined to speak out. But she says not all of the 32 MSF international staff feel the same way. A statement from Marlene is published in MSF's internal newspaper, Message, which is usually sent to a dozen French journalists from key media outlets as well. The morning of the fourth day, we at MSF discuss withdrawing and issuing a condemnation. However, on the night of the fourth day, MSF officials decided not to speak out, but to stay on site in Kisangani, not to abandon our refugees, and to serve as silent witnesses. For me, however, such advocacy rings completely hollow. It has no meaning, expresses only a misplaced pride and false heroism, and speaks to a manifest lack of courage. If MSF accepts the challenge of making a commitment to these refugees, 
We must dare to speak out and condemn. We must accept the consequences and not be satisfied with standing by passively watching people be killed and counting the bodies. That does not constitute genuine refugee protection, much less the effective continuation of the MSF team's work. If, as a doctor, I cannot continue to treat my patients for political reasons, I have a duty to speak out. I believe the failure to speak out in this context is a sign of cowardice and even betrayal of the populations in danger we sought to help. I do not understand how one can remain silent in the face of such injustice and inhumanity. In Kisangani in April 1997, I felt very isolated and was tremendously disappointed by the desk supervising my team. After hearing Marlene's testimony, MSF France puts out a press release reflecting the board's decisions and stating that Alliance forces are participating in the drive to exterminate refugees with the backing of Rwanda. MSF France also rejects the repatriation of refugees to Rwanda and calls on another country in the region, other than Rwanda or Zaire, to temporarily take in the refugees. Dr. Jean-Hervé Bradol is communications director at MSF France. So the question that arose was how to deal with this information. Does it have to be made public? The MSF France board was in favour of making it public. The second question was about the repatriation. Did we think that these refugee survivors of massacres by the Rwandan army could be repatriated to Rwanda? Logically, the board did not recommend repatriation to Rwanda for refugees who had been massacred by the Rwandan army. It's very difficult to keep such important information to yourself, especially in the context of repatriation. The other question that was discussed was whether or not to withdraw the teams while this information was being made public. So there was a month between the discussions and the release of the report during which we could have withdrawn the teams. We didn't do it, putting them at risk. That was one of the dilemmas we were faced with. They could very well have been the victims of reprisals by the Rwandan army or its Congolese allies. News agencies are quick to pick up the story and a flurry of articles combining MSF France's press release and information from the Shabunda report appear in the international press. But there's fallout within MSF. MSF Belgium immediately decides to stop giving MSF France managers information on the Great Lakes situation. To them, MSF France broke the security veto as they should have consulted all the other sections and field teams before issuing the press release. Dr. Eric Gomar is MSF Belgium's general director. It's difficult to articulate a response for the whole of MSF Belgium. I mean, it was so chaotic and we were so shocked by what we were facing there. But being present on the ground, I remember personally being influenced by what the refugees were telling me. In the majority, they were saying, if we have to die, we prefer to die in Rwanda, the land of our ancestor, a much better day than uh, to die in, mid in the forest. So they had waved the, the white flag and they were ready to be repatriated to Rwanda, whatever the condition would be, even if some of them would be uh, put in jail. And the one that continued to Brazzaville probably were the one who had decided better to hide in another country because we feel that it's not going to go uh, easy for us if, if we are repatriated. And Kagame was suspecting a lot of people who had taken part in the genocide 
in '94 were among them. So Kagame was, of course, interested to have them back under control and potentially to arrest the one that uh, would have been uh, identified as having been part of the genocide. So he was rather pushing to get them back, not all at once. So he would prefer to uh, let them come back by foot with not so much assistance. So uh, probably banking on the selection process. What I know is that the majority of the refugees were, of course, very scared of Kagame and, and his forces because uh, they, they knew exactly what happened in the majority. On the 29th of April, MSF France's general director, Bernard Pecoul, gave an interview that was repeatedly broadcast on Radio France Internationale, a station widely listened to in the Great Lakes region. The interview was in line with the MSF France press release condemning the alliance for massacring refugees with the support of Rwanda. Later that day, representatives from the alliance visit the MSF team in Kisangani and ask them to retract the accusations or leave. The Rwandan president also condemns MSF's declarations about the lack of security in Rwanda. He says that his people would come to Zaire to collect the remaining Rwandans themselves if the international community is too slow. They are in fact already beginning to evacuate refugees to Kisangani. But MSF teams on the ground are worried about the rebels taking the lead over the UNHCR on repatriation as many of the refugees are starving and wounded and the transport conditions are hectic. Later, a teleconference is called in response to the Alliance's visit and the MSF general directors agree on MSF's position concerning repatriation. They decide to keep a low profile on declarations of a political nature. MSF Belgium blames the French section for breaking two ethical rules, reporting without being present in the field and without consulting the teams present in the field. MSF France is invited to participate in a radio debate with UNHCR, Médecins du Monde and the Rwandan Embassy in Zaire. MSF France's general director joins the debate that evening, but this time he's careful to focus on medical themes while keeping a low profile on political issues. The alliance leader gives UNHCR 60 days to resolve the refugees' repatriation, which he describes as just a, quote, small problem. On the 1st of May 1997, the MSF presidents of operational sections meet in Paris. They decide that advocacy takes precedence over assistance in the Great Lakes crisis. A couple of days later, MSF France publicly denounces the alliance's media operation. MSF France's comms director, Jean-Hervé Bradol, is quoted in an AFP article. The rebels are trying to convince the international community that the problem of the refugees is being solved as negotiations begin between the head of the rebellion, Laurent Désiré Kabila, and the president of Zaire, Mobutu. But in the field, the rebels have blocked all distribution of food and water in the camps and in Kisangani. They are pushing people into aeroplanes without us being able to give them anything to drink, even though the state of health of these refugees is alarming. Where is the legitimacy for this repatriation? Is it reasonable to repatriate the refugees to Rwanda where the power there supports the rebels? The silence of the international community, which closes its eyes because it does not know where to put these refugees, claiming that the rights of refugees are today threatened. When a train arrives at a transit camp near Kisangani the next day, it's meant to be full of refugees from the Biaro camp 
who are due to be repatriated to Rwanda by air. Instead, the MSF team working there finds 91 bodies in the wagons. All have died of asphyxiation. The UN denounces the Alliance's degrading treatment of the refugees, accusing the rebels of showing less concern for refugees than they would for cattle. The European Commissioner for Humanitarian Affairs, Emma Bonino, who was so outspoken after her visit to Zaire in February, criticises Kabila in an article by the AFP news agency. Massive human rights violations have been perpetrated in the rebel-controlled areas, Ms Bonino announced during a press conference. Unimaginable carnage has been wreaked there, and these regions have been transformed into a slaughterhouse, she added. Either Mr Kabila's alliance is not in control of its troops or it is directly involved in hunting down Hutu refugees, she said, also accusing neighbouring countries, including Rwanda, of doing nothing to prevent these acts, even encouraging them. Again, MSF France publicly calls for the repatriation to be stopped. But MSF Belgium, who have now taken over from the Dutch in coordinating operations and distributing information within the MSF network, disagree with the move. The minutes from an MSF Belgian board on the 9th of May read Strongly worded press releases from Paris condemning authorities for participating in killing refugees further heightened the insecurity of international staff in the field. We can't go back. MSF must continue to demand access to the camps. But in the future, we have to improve coordination among sections because we can't be sure that a similar incident won't reoccur. The coordinators will hold a teleconference soon on this issue. During the last MSF France board meeting, the board voted to replace the security veto with a 24-hour advanced security warning before a press release is issued so that teams have time to evacuate the field. Eric Gomer and MSF Belgium Operational Director believe that after this section's efforts to create a joint strategy on this issue, it is unacceptable for the MSF France board to issue a blank cheque for such a plan. Near Kisangani, MSF and other humanitarian organisations finally get access to the Biaro camp and find between 40 to 60 people are dying there every day. And that's not even counting those hiding in the dense forests. The Alliance gives a 10-day deadline for evacuating the site, but MSF says this is not enough. Le Monde reports. Lying on the black earth, four naked babies have even lost the strength to moan. Surrounded by general indifference, worms are eating at them. Mother, you must not leave them like that, yells Carol from UNICEF. The team wraps the babies in anything at hand. Further on, near the so-called hospital, a death site housing around a hundred patients beneath a tent, the bodies of two dead children rot in the gutter. Refugees tell how massacres are still taking place. In Rwanda, MSF teams are trying to provide medical assistance to the returning refugees. By now, between 1,500 to 2,000 people are being repatriated by air every day. But more negative news stories about the Alliance are creating problems for MSF field staff. A communications update from the Rwanda team reads, Negotiations continue about the provision of proper medical and nutritional attention for returnees. There is strong pressure from the government to discharge patients from our facilities in order that the people return as quickly as possible to their communes. The fear is that we will only be able to stabilise the health situations of those arriving from Kisangani without being able to do anything more than this. 
The French government's denunciation of the orchestrated massacres above Rwandan refugees by the rebels two days ago has made security a more significant issue for French members of teams. The Alliance held a press conference in Brussels yesterday and during this expressed dissatisfaction with MSF. It was said that MSF is using the Rwandan refugees to create bad public opinion of Kabila. Next time on Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire. MSF hopes to rebuild its reputation in the world's media after the Shabunda Report fiasco by publishing a new study that tracks and explains refugee flows in the Great Lakes region. But a lack of good communication between sections means things don't go according to plan again. I would say strong disagreement within the movement and very, very regrettable moment, I would say, in terms of communication. And as Kabila takes over the Zairean capital and renames the country the Democratic Republic of Congo, there are reports of further massacres taking place. This MSF podcast is based on an original MSF case study called The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, Congo, 1996-1997. It's written by Laurence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, Martin Saulnier, and Rebecca Golden-Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Danielle Stagg and Matthew Wade. Additional voiceovers and readings are by Clive Hayward, Kathy Hewison, Gregory Keane, and Andrea Rangecroft. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Françoise Boucher-Saulnier, Dr. Jean-Hervé Bradol, Dr. Eric Gomar, and Leslie Lefko. To read the full study and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org slash speakingout. Thanks for listening. <laughs>